All right. So is there anybody here who's not been here through the road to Emmaus? I think we're all familiar with what we're doing. So I'm not going to... I'm not going to take the time to go back to Luke 24 um, and really cover that other than just the, the one verse, which is really the key verse in there where it says, And Jesus, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So we come tonight to, this is part seven. It's the seventh book in the Bible. The book of Judges. Seven. 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 Part seven. To the fun, crazy, yet tragic book of Judges. It's been called the wild, wild west of the Old Testament recently by Pastor Tim, and rightfully so, because um, it's pretty crazy. How many of y'all have been to kids camp in the last decade. A good many of you. Do y'all remember some of the more crazy characters and stories that happened in Judges? Can anybody recap that for me? Do y'all know who I'm talking about? Okay, that's one. But we don't really do that in a kids camp, do we? Nope. We're going to get to that one. How about the left-handed man? Y'all don't remember this. Ehud? Eglon, the fat, very fat king. And Ehud sneaks himself into the king's chamber. And Ehud is one of the, the judges. He's a deliverer. And he rams the sword into fat King Eglon's belly. And the fat closed around the hilt. And then my favorite part, the dung came out. So, dung? What is a dung? It is a poop. A poop. He's like, <laughs> good try, good try. Okay, so there is also a theme in this book of women crushing men's skulls. You heard me right. Women crushing men's skulls. I'm going to read you just a couple because we're not going to cover these in detail. I'll just, I have to read a few of these. The first one is none other than J.L. In uh, chapter 421, you might want to look it up just to say that I'm not lying. Then Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and placed a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him. He was asleep, by the way, in her tent and drove the peg into his temple and it went through into the ground for he was sound asleep and exhausted and exhausted. So he died. So then Deborah said, I've got to write a song about that. I worship song to the Lord. And so in five, chapter 524, she writes this, and it's a song. Most blessed of women is Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. Most blessed is she of women in the tent. For he asked for her water, and she gave him milk. In a mighty bowl, she brought him curds. She sent forth her hand for the tent peg, and her right hand for the workman's hammer. And then she beat Sisera, she smashed his head, and she crushed and pierced his temple. Between her feet he bowed, he fell, he lay. Between her feet he bowed, he fell. 
Where he bowed, there he fell, violently devastated. So I think we should add that as the last verse of Amazing Grace and sing it on Sunday mornings. What do y'all think? I agree. That's not the craziest one, though. Judges chapter 9, our theme of women crushing skulls, 9.53. But a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head, and she smashed his skull. And then it gets really funny. Listen to this. Then he quickly called to the young man, his armor bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and put me to death, lest they say of me, a woman killed him. So the young man pierced him through, and he died. <laughs> so if you didn't notice, the men were really struggling during this time, and really they were. Like, God, God was, like, delivering them through women, like Deborah, because none of the men would stand up and do the fighting. Um, and so there, there are great stories of deliverance, and there's crazy ones like that. And there's familiar characters. You've already mentioned one of them, Gideon. And what is another great character we know and talk about in Judges? Samson. Samson. That's right. But it ends in tragedy. The last verse of the book goes like this. In, the, in uh, Judges 21-25, it says, In those days there was no king, and everyone did what was right, in his own eyes. That's not a good thing, by the way. If that, that would make a great Disney movie. You know, follow your heart and your dreams will come true. But as we know and as we'll see in Judges and as we see all over the Bible, man's heart is desperately good, desperately deceitful, wicked. Yes, fill in the blank with a bad word. Um, not a... Anyway... So let's start with the when. When did the events of Judges take place? The events of Judges took place between around 1300 B.C. to around 1,000-ish B.C. So 1300 to 1,000 years before Christ. Um, the two main characters in the Bible, they come between, or you could say it starts with kind of the death of Joshua, and it ends uh, before Saul is made king. So those are kind of your, your bookends there um, in Judges. So that's the when, now the who. And Drew already brought this up. Who were these judges? What did they do? It, he already asked the question. Um, what do you think of when you think of a judge? A hammer. A hammer. But J.L. Would, was a good judge then. She used that hammer well. No. Guilty, courtroom, judging, between cases, deciding on penalties, judgments, all of that, sure. And they did that. And we saw this, you know, you would see this. Moses did this. The people of Israel would come to him uh, for judgments on cases. Hey, we've got this conflict with these people, um, whatever it was, and, and he would sort through those. And the judges did that. Later we'd see the kings do that. That's where Solomon asked for wisdom from the Lord. Give me wisdom to know how to rule rightly with these people. And so the judges would do that, but we don't hardly see that at all in the book of Judges. They're 
Their other role and function, which is mainly what we see in the book of Judges, is that they are deliverers. Deliverers through military might. Um, it, Judges really hits the high points of them delivering the people of Israel. And so, you know, there'll be a lot of times and they'll say, and there was 20 years of peace and there was 40 years of peace. And this judge judged for, you know, 20 years or whatever. And it doesn't really tell us what happened because it was times of peace. So that's what they did. Um, so let's, um, let's turn to chapter one of Judges. And it seems to start really on a good note. It seems that they have some resolve, um, especially at the end of Joshua. How many of y'all have ever heard the verse, um, choose you this day whom you will serve? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. How many of y'all have seen that on a plaque, heard it, read it, whatever? We used to have it on our front door growing up as a kid. I'd see it every time I would go in there. And so it's a charge to the people of Israel as for, you know, choose you this day. Whom are you going to serve? As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And the people, um, they answer back and say, I mean, with a lot of gusto and resolve, it seems, and say, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. So from a human perspective, it seems it starts on a good, strong note. Um, so, and even in chapter one, if we'll pick up in verse one of chapter one, now it happened after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel asked of Yahweh, and I'm reading the Legacy Standard Bible, and so it translates Lord as Yahweh, um, saying, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And Yahweh said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. So it's almost like they're saying, hey, who's, who's going to get in line first? You know, and take this charge to, to finish the conquest of Canaan, which is what they were charged to do, to drive out these inhabitants uh, from the land and to finish the conquest of the promised land. And they start on a good note. And... For the first seven verses, Judah is doing great. He's winning victories. Everything's going great. It's doing good. And then we come to verse 21. And in verse 21, it says, But the sons of Benjamin did not dispossess or drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. And you go down to verse 27. But Manasseh did not drive them out. 29. Ephraim did not drive them, the Canaanites out. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. The Amorites pressed the sons of Dan into the hill country. And so just like that, after a few verses... All that resolve and all that optimism collapses with this resounding thump. So, just as you, you could even say this, I think, kind of alluding to something that Heath talked about two weeks ago, 
kind of making a parallel between what was going on in the garden and what was going on here. You could say just as Adam failed to drive the serpent out of the garden, the children of Adam or the children of Israel failed to drive out the children of the serpent from the promised land. The pagans, they did not drive them out. But we know that in Genesis 3, one was prophesied to come who would not only drive out the serpent, but who would crush his head, namely Jesus Christ. So my kids can tell you, a lot of people would, would think that my favorite music to listen to is like modern Christian music. And I listen to very little of that. Like Drew does a great job picking what we do on Sunday mornings and a lot of that stuff I do listen to and I enjoy and it's good, solid doctrinally and biblically and musically and all that. Um, most of the Christian music I listen to is more like older stuff, like um, Rich Mullins, yeah, and then some of this new stuff like Andrew Peterson. But they would tell you nine times out of ten when we're at home and I'm just putting something in the background music, what do I listen to? Lord of the Rings, which is movie theme music. I've got like a Pandora, I've got a Lord of the Rings station, I've got a John Williams station, I've got a Hans Zimmer station, I've got a James Horner station, I've got a, you know, all these different stations that are different kind of veins of classical and orchestrated movie theme music. I love the stuff. And one of the things I love, music is so good at taking you, even with just a few notes, taking you and grabbing your, your mind and your heart and just putting them into a movie, a theme, a character, emotions about those things, and all that. Let's see if we can do this. I'm going to hum five notes, and y'all tell me what this is from. You can finish it out if you want to, just five notes. You tell me what movie this is from and what you think of when you hear these notes, okay? Ready? Dun, 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 dun. What is it? You said it. Star Wars. And so what do you think of when you hear Star Wars? Yes. Darth Vader. Some of you, you went straight to the darkness. <laughs> so, Luke Skywalker, you know, all of those, you, it takes you into a character in a film. How about four notes? If Josh was in here, he would love this one. Dun, 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 dun. Indiana Jones. And where, what do you think of? You think of Indi just four notes and you think of Indiana Han Solo. Star Wars, you think of Star Wars. No, you think of the bullwhip and the hat and the adventures and automatically those four notes take you into the character. What did you say? Yes, Nazis. Oh, punching Nazis. I thought you went straight to the darkness too. Um, okay, how about two notes? This gets a little trickier, but I think you'll get it. Okay, two notes. Ready? Yes, two notes, and it takes you right to this villain. And if you're in the water, you get chill bumps, and you get out of the water. 
I love this about music. See how it only takes just a few notes from the main theme to completely draw you in to a story. And movie makers do this intentionally. And if you, if you notice, and this is one thing I love about the, the movie themes and all that, if you notice, even a lot of characters have a, a theme just for them. And if you'll notice, throughout the story arc, they'll loop sometimes just a few notes of that hero theme at just the right time in the movie to draw you in to who that hero would be and what that hero would do. And in a sense, I think this is what we're doing in this Emmaus Road, is we're looking at all the times when, when the main theme and the hero theme, which are one and the same theme, it's Jesus Christ and His redemption, every time that that's loops in the Bible. And it will draw us more in, and as he said, and as those two guys said in Luke 24, to make our hearts burn within us, to see who Christ is, who this deliverer would be, and how he would deliver his people. You can almost, you know, in Genesis 3, you've got the picture there where everything is bleak. God has just pronounced curse and curses and, and woe, and everything is just spiraling down. But then there's the Proto-Angelion, the first gospel, where he says a man is coming who will crush the serpent's head. And it's almost as if you could hear that hero theme for the first time start to swell a little in the background. And then it would die away. And then in Genesis 15, when he makes his covenant with Abraham, and the flame and the torch pass through the carcass. And he says, if, if, let happen to me what has happened to this animal if either end of our deal is not upheld. It's telling us something about who this deliverer would be and how he would deliver. And so it swells there and dies away again. And then as the people are taken captive into Egypt... It would die away only to swell again as he delivered his people over and over. When Moses delivered them from the hand of Pharaoh in Exodus, only to die down again as they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And we'd hear subtle themes with the tabernacle and the law. The sacrificial system, each one telling of something of who this hero would be and how he would deliver. And in Joshua, we start to see great victory like the Battle of Jericho and the conquest of Canaan and the Promised Land. And the music seems to be building only to die away again here at the beginning of Judges where it says they did not drive out the inhabitants. And the rest of Judges will see this pattern of hearing the main theme of redemption swell and then die away. Sometimes swelling to near a crescendo and sometimes just a few notes. But as we've seen, it only takes a few notes to draw our minds and our affections into who this deliverer would be, who this greater and true judge and deliverer would be. As Jesus said to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but the scriptures testify of me. So if someone could look up Judges 3, 
7 through at least 11. Who can read that for me? Um, you. <laughs> Jacob. Jacob, I've loved. Esau, I've hated. Um, if you could read 3, 7 through 11. And re what does the next verse say? Okay, do you see they ended up where they started? You could almost copy and paste that about 12 times, and you'd have the book of Judges. It is a pattern that repeats over and over. Worse than a pattern, it's like a downward spiral because they continue to get worse and worse and worse because that's what following your heart does. So the first eight uh, numbers on your study guide, we're about to crank through real quick. So if you could go ahead and put the first one up there. Okay, so the first thing that happens is the people sin in verse seven. And as it said here, and it's typical throughout the book, um, it was called sin, it was called great evil, and it was usually associated with them following after um, idols, foreign gods. Okay, so there you have um, the first one. The second, the Lord raises up enemies. This showing that God is sovereign even in, the, in this whole thing, over every detail, God is sovereign and God is working out his good plan, even when they see, it seems bad for Israel. Um, three is the people cry out to the Lord in verse nine. Uh, number four, the Lord raises up a deliverer. Number five, the spirit of the Lord is on him. Okay, sometimes it says that the Spirit of the Lord, like with Samson, came mightily upon him. Sometimes it just says it was on him. And sometimes it says it was withdrawn from him or whatever. So Jesus, as the, the true and greater judge in John 3.34, it says the Spirit was given him without measure. And I'm not going to try to explain the inner Trinitarian working of that. That's what the Bible says. He's the true and greater judge. It was given to him without measure, not mightily, not some, without measure. Uh, number six, he defeats their enemies. The judge defeats their enemies. Um, usually with, um, you know, it's always the Lord delivering, but with some help from other people. 
Um, number seven, while he is alive, there is peace and rest. Or while he lives, there is peace and rest. And then eight, as we saw at the end of that, the judge dies and the pattern repeats. Almost every time, this is the pattern that judges follows. And like we said already, it's, it's worse than a pattern. It's a downward spiral. They just continue to get worse in this. So we're going to skip to chapter 6 at the start of another cycle downward. Um, if someone could read, uh, let's go ahead and read chapter 6. Someone could get uh, verses 1 through 7. Uh, do I? Okay, you can go ahead. I'll get you in a minute, Emma. Yeah. Was that seven? Yeah. Okay, I was at probably like seven A was where I was going to stop. Okay, so here is, I wanted to read that because I wanted you to, to see how bad this was. Did y'all catch what was going on that the Midianites, you ever seen, what is the movie, The Bug's Life? Yeah. And it's the locust, that's what it's like, is the locust would come in every time harvest would come in, and they would take all the food. And that's literally, it called them like swarms of locusts. And that's what they're doing is they are coming in. And can you imagine that? You, you finally get a little food on the table and then people come in and they not only raid your pantry and your refrigerator and your garden in the backyard, but Walmart and the grocery store. And every chance you have of getting food, they take your food. And this is life or death. One of the reasons I bring it up is I want you to be thinking as we're looking through um, some of the enemies that Israel had, I'm going to ask you a question at the end. Who do you think they needed delivering from the most? And I want you to be thinking about that as we're going through it. Um, but I wanted you to see and kind of get a little taste of what they were dealing with here. It really was a desperate situation. So the Lord raises up Gideon. Um, Gideon has a slow start, and he seems to doubt the Lord, but the Lord grows his faith, continues to work. So let's 
Pick up the story in chapter 7. If someone could read chapter 7, verse 1 and 2. Go ahead, Emma. Seven, one, and two. Huh? Oh, weird looking word. Just guess at it. Oh, uh, Jerubbabel. Jerubbabel. Gideon. Yeah, that's his. Okay, so there's 32,000 Israelites. I mean, that's not as many as the Midianites. They had many more, it sounds like. But 32,000 is a decent army. And then God says, nope, that's too many. If you win with this many, you will say, (laughs) my own hand has saved me. This is the natural tendency of man, and this is number nine. The natural tendency of man is to think he can contribute to his own salvation. What does Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 say? So that no one may boast. It's a gift of God, not of works. The only thing we contribute to it is our sin. And so if you want to boast in that, there's nothing left to boast in. Um, we do not, we can't contribute anything to our own salvation. And, and this is that theme. You see just a few notes here in that theme. But you see it began to play in the story of Gideon, that theme of redemption. So he has all the, and I'll just recap this without reading it. Um, so he takes, he says, no, there's too many. And so right off the bat, he sends 22,000 home. And so he's got around 10,000 left. And the Lord says, there's still too many. So this is weird, but he has all of the men drink from water. And 300 of them lap it up like a dog. And they get on one side. And then the rest of them, which would have been around 9,700, they scoop it up like this and drink like that, like a normal person. So which side does God say, that's your crew, go take them and fight the Midianites? The dog lappers. I don't think that's a compliment. I don't think lapping like a dog is saying, oh, those are the, that's, they, they, that's the elite crew right there. They got it, which probably would go with other themes of how God chooses in the Bible. It's not because we're the best. He, he loves us because he loves us um, and chooses us because it pleases him to do so. So, Judges seven sixteen through 21, um, I will read this one. 
quick. Judges 7, you can read along with me if you want to. Judges 7, uh, 16. And he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put trumpets and empty pitchers into the hands of them all, with torches inside the pitchers. Then he said to them, Look at me and do likewise, and behold, I will come to the outskirts of the camp, and will be that just as I do so, you do likewise. And I and all who are with me will blow the trumpet. Then you also shall blow the trumpets all around the camp and say, For Yahweh and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch. Which even that right there is military genius in how they won this being at the, the, the middle watch. When they had just set up the watch, they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, and they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands and called out a sword for Yahweh and for Gideon. And each stood in his place around the camp. Then all the camp ran, and they made a loud shout and fled. So, a few things here. One, we've already seen this imagery used of a torch and a pot. Do you all remember where? I talked about it earlier. In Genesis 15? Abraham. Abraham, that's right. And so it, it might not be stretching too far to say that, again, this might be showing something of how the true and greater judge, Jesus, would deliver. Um, when Paul talked about clay pots, he talked about it being our, our human vessels, basically. And so here you have light and a clay pot. And when the clay pot is broken, that's when victory is won. Might just be a couple notes, but I think that theme may be continuing there. Y'all see the picture there? That Christ, when his body was broken, is when... And then there's also this. Um, what do the people shout out? A sword for Yahweh or a sword for the Lord and Gideon. Sword of God and man. God and a man. God and a man. Could this be telling us something of what the true and greater judge would be? That it would be the God-man, Jesus Christ, who would be our ultimate judge and deliverer. And also, that they call on the name of the Lord and are delivered, as Paul would write later, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And the music would swell in triumph here, only to die away again, as Gideon ultimately would fail and lead them later into idol worship. Lastly, we have Samson, who was known for what? His strength. Long hair. And strength. Yes, the incredible Hulk of the Old Testament. So uh, I'm going to read Judges 13, 1 through 5.
want you to listen to this and see if you see any parallels with anything else in the Bible. First, we have the, the start of another um, downward spiral. Then the sons of Israel again did what was evil in the, in the eyes of Yahweh, so that Yahweh gave them into the land of the Philistines for 40 years. That's two less years than I've been alive. That's a long time. And there was a certain man of Zor, because I'm old. Y'all remind me all the time. There was a certain man of Zorah of the family of Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of Yahweh appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold now, you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall be with child and give birth to a son. So now be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall be with child and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So, this starts out similar to, you know, a lot of the, like Abraham and Isaac, um, kind of like Zechariah and John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist was a Nazarite. Um, Samson is a Nazarite. The angel appears to the parents. There's barrenness, all of this stuff going on, but it also is reminiscent of um, Jesus. In Matthew 21, it says, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. So again, this time it looks like this deliverer is going to be different, and in ways he is. He's a Nazarite. There's only a few of these guys mentioned in the Bible. Um, and he starts off on the right track for about two verses. Could somebody read uh, 13, 24, and 25? Who's got that for me? If you get it, go for it. Thirteen, twenty-four, and twenty-five. Just give it your best shot. It doesn't. The names. The names. The names don't matter. Okay. So the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. And then in 14, 1 through 3, what does it say? This is right after that. Then Samson went down to Timnah and saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines, the enemy. So he came back and told his father and mother, I saw a woman in Timnah, one of the daughters of the Philistines. So now take her for me as a wife. But his father and his mother said, Is there no woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Take her for me, for she is right in my eyes. I think he said it like that. So just like that, 
um, already he's off track, okay? Um, but the Lord still uses him, as we'll see in chapter 15, 14 through 18. And this is pretty familiar for most of all. So for most of y'all, it should be pretty familiar. And I'm going to skip through a lot of this. But um, it says, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines shouted as they met him, and the Spirit of Yahweh came upon him mightily. And there's that Spirit of the Lord coming upon mightily and all that. So that the ropes that were on his arms were as flax that is burned with fire, and his binds dropped from his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, so that he sent forth his hand and took it and struck down a thousand men with it. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. Um, and then in verse 18, Then he became very thirsty, and he called to Yahweh and said, you have given this great salvation by your hand from, of your slave. So he recognized, one, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and provided his strength. Okay, and a lot of, and, and he saw that it was God that had won the victory. Even, even Samson said, yeah, this, the, you're, you did it through me, I'm your slave, you did this. But um, well, it's funny how a lot of the depictions and illustrations you see of Samson He's always what? Totally jacked. You know, just... And, you know, the Bible gives us no indication of that. It doesn't tell us either way. Like, you know, some... you he, Corlin's back there flexing. I mean, most people would say he looks like... Well, never mind. Um, but it doesn't say either way. It just says that the Spirit of the Lord came on him... And the Lord brought about the victory. It never says, says that Samson's strength came from his own. All right, so now we're going to read. I'm going to read a big section here, Samson and Delilah. And it's, it is like, and I, I skipped one section. We don't have time. I skipped one section already that had to do with his first wife. And it was like some messed up reality romance show or something. I mean, it's like, and this gets even worse. But I, w I want to read it just so, even though a lot of you know the story, because I want to make a point with it, because there is a point with it. Then Samson went to Gaza and saw a harlot there and went into her. And it was told to the Gazites, saying, Samson has come here. So they surrounded the place and lay in wait for him all night at the gate of the city. And they kept silent all night, saying, Let us wait until the morning, then we'll kill him. But Samson lay until my night, and at midnight he rose and seized the doors of the city gate and the two posts and pulled them up along with the bars. And then he put them on his shoulders and brought them to the top of the mountain, which is opposite Hebron. Now it happened afterwards that he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, and her name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Entice him. See where his great strength lies, and how we may overpower him, that we may bind him and afflict him. Then we will give you um, 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength is, and how you may be bound to afflict you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh cords that have not been tried, then I will become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh cords that had not been tried, and she bound him with them. 
Now she had men lying in wait, sitting in an inner room, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the cords as a string of tinder snaps when it touches fire, so his strength was still known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have deceived me and told me lies. Now please tell me how you may be bound. So she's lied to him once. And he said to her, If they bind me tightly with new ropes, which have not been used for work, then I will become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And now the men lying in wait were sitting in the inner room. But he snapped the ropes from his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Up to now you have deceived me and told me lies. Tell me how you may be bound. I mean, the insanity of this, right? I'm mad at you because you're not telling me how to kill you. There's a way to kill you. I know it. You're not telling me, and I'm angry. This is literally what she's saying, and it is insanity that he keeps doing it. Now it happened when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. I like the way this version <laughs> is that, annoyed to death. So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I'm shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like every other man. And Delilah saw that he had told her all that was in his heart. So she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up once more, for he has told me all that is in his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought up the silver in their hands. Then she made him sleep on her knees and called for a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to afflict him, and his strength left him. She said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that Yahweh had left him. Then the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze chains, and he was a grinder in the he was a grinder in the prison. Why? Why would he do this over and over and over? She has lied to him and betrayed him, and he keeps falling for her. The point, and it's an object lesson for us and for Israel. Samson was the hero and the deliverer that Israel deserved. Because just as Samson was always pursuing and falling for these foreign women to his ruin, Israel was continually falling for foreign guides to their ruin. Over and over and over, and it was insane. It was more insane what the Israelites were doing than what Samson was doing. And it's like God is giving them a picture. This is who, this is what you're doing. And it's insane. And it's insane when we do it as well. When we fall for temptation, looking for happiness, fulfillment, pleasure, whatever it is, when only Christ, only God, is the true source of joy and fulfillment. Jesus is not the hero 
that we deserve, nor is he the hero that they deserved, but he is the hero that we needed. Never once did Jesus not love the Lord with all his heart and all his mind. Never once did Jesus ever look at a woman in a wrong way. Never once, as it says in Isaiah, he will know how to refuse the bad, the evil, and choose the good. So I ask you early to be thinking about who it was that Israel needed delivering from the most. The most recent enemy we've looked at is the Philistines. We've had the Amorites, the Midianites, and the, um, the Philistines. And remember, the Philistines would be, they would be around for a while. Goliath was a Philistine. They were pretty big. So what enemy did they need delivering from the most? What do y'all think? Themselves. Look at y'all. Yes. And see, I tried to trick you even with how I did the outline. Themselves, their own sinful hearts. We see it over and over where it says, and the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And in response to that, the Lord strengthened these enemies against them. Somebody turn to Romans 5.10. Romans 5.10. And read it loud and proud. We're almost done. Who were the enemies? Us. We're the enemies of God. We need delivering from ourselves. Our own hearts are wretched and sinful. We need delivering. See, they needed deliverance from their sin, and their deliverers could not even deliver themselves from their own sin. You see the failure over and over with Gideon and Samson and you know, all these guys, they, they could not even deliver themselves. So let's finish the story. And I love this, 1622. However, the hair of his head began to grow again after it shaved off. There's a glimmer of hope there. Now the lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to be glad. And they said, our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. Then the people saw him and praised their gods, for they said... Our God has given our enemy into our hands, even the destroyer of our country who has slain many of us. So it happened when their hearts were merry that they said, Call for Samson that he may amuse us. So they called for Samson from the prison, and he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars. Then Samson said to the boy who was holding his hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house is established, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there, and about 3,000 men and women were on the roof looking on while Samson was amusing them. Then Samson called to Yahweh and said, O Lord Yahweh, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson grasped the two, made, 
middle pillars on which the house was established and supported himself against them, the one with his right hand and the other with his left. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bent with the strength so that the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he put to death by his death were more than those whom he had put to death in his life. So here we see that theme of deliverance start to swell. And for a thousand years, we would see it swell and die off and swell and die off until finally the true and greater Samson made captive by his enemies, beaten, would hang on a cross and not for vengeance for his two eyes, but for love greater than any man has known, he would spread out his arms and lay down his perfect, sinless, infinitely valuable life. And he would be crushed. Not by stones from a Philistine palace, but he would be crushed by the wrath of God. The wrath that you deserved, the wrath that I deserved. Isaiah said he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sin. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. The Israelites, the judges, you, me. But God has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yes, just like Samson, Jesus' death won the greatest victory, the victory over sin and death. And here at his death, it would seem that it's all over. We've seen it a thousand times in movies. The greatest battle, we think the hero's dead. The music is defeat. And then that hero theme starts to swell again. And hand comes up out of the rubble, and the hero rises to ultimate victory. Why do we love those stories? I think it's because they remind us of the ultimate story of Christ and how he would deliver, how he would save. Lastly, Hebrews 7.25. See, no matter how many, no, no matter how many victories these judges won, that was part of the pattern is they would die and they could no longer deliver. And the people would fall back into sin. But Hebrews 7.25 says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession. I love that. Save to the uttermost. The judges were shadows and types of the true and greater judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you so much for Jesus and for his work. I pray that our hearts would burn within us in how um, this story weaves its way through the Old Testament, showing us who Christ would be and how he would deliver. Lord, I pray that it would drive us to you, drive us to repent and believe in the gospel, to love Jesus and to live for Jesus. We pray this in his strong name. Amen.